Tony, sorry for my radio silence in recent days. I just uh, been up in St. Petersburg having an incredible time there where the sun never sets. Caught the fast train back from St. Petersburg to Moscow today. Fast rail, there's an idea. Who would have thunk that being in a fast rail line between two major cities that reduces the travel time by at least half was a good idea. It was great to get back here, but I am walking in Red Square. And I virtually have the place to myself because the sound you hear over my head is thundering rain. A huge thunderstorm has come through and cleared the square, which is kind of cool because everyone's run like rabbits. And those of us not afraid of the rain can step out into Red Square right in front of Lenin's Mussolini, which is over there and fenced off because I, I think they're trying to pretend he's not in there at the moment. I just want that one to go away. Looking at the, um, the balcony from which Brezhnev, Khrushchev, Stalin, a lot of them would wave past the Victory Day and May Day parades. And it's just me and a couple of hardy tourists out here. And it's kind of weird and kind of wonderful. So thank God for the rain. It's giving me a red square to myself. <laughs> so I'm wandering around here. I've got to go and do a television cross with our good friend Dave Dvorovich. Trying to make sense of what happened with the Socceroos. And I know there's been a lot of angst. And just written his article. He's I told you so. 2.0 on what happened, Craig Foster's teed off, the blame game's begun, the caravan's moved on without the Socceroos and at home we're sort of gnashing our teeth and I'm here to watch the remaining games. St Basil's is right in front of me in the rain, it's just me and the Onion Domes and three Japanese tourists ahead of me. This is cool, this is fucking wild, <laughs> just me Brezhnev over there, buried just across the road. Stalin, I can see his head somewhere over there. His grave's somewhere along there. They're all buried just in front of me. I can see their graves just there. And then there's Vlad in the tomb. Two soldiers in front of uh, his mausoleum, standing rod still in the rain. He's not home. He's not taking visitors today. Anyway, it's good to be back here. It's kind of weird. Feels like coming home. How did that happen? Anyway, better go talk to Davudovic. Might get him to have a few things to say on the other side of this. The trudge through Red Square. So, Tony, I'm in the pub watching France <laughs> shake the world with a 4-2 scoreline with about 10 minutes to play against Argentina, scoring some spectacular goals in the process. Dave Davudovic is with me, Archie Shaw from the Evening Standard in the UK. Firstly, Archie... As an Englishman, how are you feeling about England's chances coming up in the next 48 hours? Reasonably optimistic. I think the game against Belgium was certainly a reality check, but it's still very difficult to read much into that game because England made eight changes, but as importantly, Belgium made eight changes. So that completely affects... But we've not even really seen the best England against a, a proper team in, in respect because Panama and Tunisia, they didn't really put up much of a fight. So I, I think it's still a little bit doubtful as to what's going to happen and that's keeping all the fans on edge, particularly back in England. But I, I say back in England. Back in England at the moment, there's this unbelievable wave of optimism. <laughs> Every street corner that I hear from mates, they're like, it's coming home. So I, I just saw Paul Merson tweeting out, yeah, just watch Colombia, they're not much chop, we shouldn't have too many issues getting to uh, to the quarterfinals so they've set themselves up but I'm uh, I'm bracing myself for a, a Croatia uh, England semi-final for 
Francis. I think uh, that'll be a fantastic. I've got uh, uh, Croatian ancestry, Archie, so quite looking forward to that game. That'll be a, a belter. I think the last time they met was what 2000 and uh, Euro 2008 qualifiers, if I'm not mistaken. What was the score on that occasion? Oh, my memories just have gone a little bit blurry. I've got. To I say. think Dave remembers. Three-two uh, win for Croatia. <laughs> that, that was a, a famous game in England, of course, because it saw Steve McLaren standing on the touchline. The Wally with the brolly. <laughs> so, to this day, I still think that's a bit harsh because in any other country it would be like, oh, he's trying to find a solution. Hello. Argentina nearly scoring. Uh, you're trying to find a solution to the fact it's raining. And, and in England, you get criticized. Look at him trying to stay dry. Like, it's a little bit harsh, but I mean, he's, he's a figure of mockery. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Croatia reached the semi finals either. They've had a very good tournament. So. Now, Archie, what's the perception of Australian football? Like, we battle our way through the group stages, we hold our eye, and we can't score in open play. How do you see it as a, you know, a hard nosed British Fleet Street Juno? I. I I don't know if I'm one of those. I, I live in Germany for a start. <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't think that, that fits the description, but... Look, I mean, I've looked into the Australia situation a little bit, and it seems that they compromised their chances from the start with the whole Tim Cahill situation. Does that seem odd to you, that Louis had made some sort of commercial deal to make him the face of the World Cup, and then he plays about 30 minutes of the game? And it reminds me of... I mean, look, he... he you can't really pin much on Cahill, but I don't think it helps with the noise around the squad. I think he can help some of the younger players, for sure, in terms of experience. But you have to be there yourself to have the same authority. You've actually seen the same problem maybe in the Germany squad with someone like Sami Kadira, because you lack the authority if you're not performing yourself on the pitch. And when Cahill's off the pitch, I don't know, he looks so desperate to get on half the time. But look, I think you guys know it. It goes back to before Bert van Marwijk, like this turnover of coaches that you've had in Australia, if I remember correctly. That doesn't create a very stable environment and struggling in terms of bringing players through I've seen I mean I've spoken to Matthew Leckie a couple of times in Germany and they have a player of great potential but I wonder how many players of the requisite technical skill that you have right coming through right now I've got to say though I've been really pleasantly surprised sounds like I'm looking down I'm really not but I think that's okay we're used to being patronised <laughs> no no I, but I mean it in terms of the Australian footballing culture like in terms of just really feeling how big a sport that was I, I guess I was a bit ignorant to that fact and kind of hearing this whole furore about what's been going on with Optus for example and, and, and at SBS and seeing kind of Malcolm Turnbull getting involved I, I kind of I like how that became such a big issue in Australia when maybe I, I don't know you guys can tell me maybe kind of four eight years ago for previous World Cups would that have happened so I think even the fact that that debate is being had is a real kind of progress for the sport in the country yeah because we're so used to you and I David getting up in the wee hours of the night early mornings if you love football you sacrifice sleep we invest yeah look there's always football's always been a well-followed sport you know sometimes it's been quite underground but you know a big part of the reason the A-League started was in 2002 we had the Japan Korea World Cup which was sort of the first World Cup in our time zone the final with Brazil Germany where there was no local interest um, rated uh, over 3 million it was the highest rating sporting event of the year and and that sort of prompted the government to really start investing in Australian football and that was a big part of the reason um, the A-League started but um, going back to Tim Cahill I think it's a really intriguing issue 
and it sort of goes to the root of the problem in Australia, right? So you can slice and dice Tim Cahill's selection all you want, but if he doesn't make the squad, who replaces him, Francis? Nikita Rukovica, who scored a handful of goals over in the Israeli top tier. Um, James Troisi, who had an average season at Melbourne Victory. Who, who replaces him? And that what, speaks, what are the alternatives? Yeah, that speaks to just how much work we've got to do. Archie, I'll let you get back to watching the rest of the game. Great to speak to you, young man. Pleasure. Good to get your perspective on things. Is it Greg? Yeah, I love horses. Do you, Greg? Yeah. And your guy, he's from Wilwell, but we still love him. Tim, who do you follow, Arch? Who do you follow, Greg? England. England and Russia. and Russia. England and Russia. Yeah. The great the great alliance. There you go. <laughs> We're in the Stroke Bar, Red October. And, and that was well, a, but it's all the <laughs> That's the We're best going, We're going for Qatar 2022. We'll see you there. I'll of see course, you there. That's going to be the great irony irony and hopefully for us we're going to get a group with Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> that's the fucking amazing irony. Come on, get it, get it, get it. You want to start World War Three? That's nice. No, <laughs> I don't want. Oh, Argentina, no. All right, we're going to see Messi's got no right foot, Frankie. Would you fucking love that? Yes. If Israel will play Palestine, the World Cup, that's the best resolution for any conflict. Let's let the football gods make it so. Exactly. Thank you, my brother. Shake my hand here. There we go. Okay, Tone. We're going to watch the rest of this game. And um, yes, who knows what happens from here.